to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. This past week was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the day when thousands of ordinary young men became the bravest of the brave and came to be known as the greatest generation. With their sacrifice, they rescued the free world from the horrors of unimaginable evil. Yet today, even as we memorialize the sacrifice they made for us, we face a new and terrifying threat that is not coming from a foreign nation an ocean away, but from within the halls of our own Congress, in that government body that our founding fathers created to keep us safe from tyranny. Today, many of those who claim to represent us are instead leading us into a danger that has the capacity to destroy everything that we hold dear. It is fed and nurtured by ignorance and greed and indifference to the fact that their efforts are undermining the very foundation of our American soul. And so in the next hour, we'll explore both the threat that is presenting itself in our news every day and possible antidotes, solutions, that we have within our grasp to save us. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. On June 6th, a friend of mine posted the following in his own commentary on this momentous anniversary. He wrote, Communism, fascism, and socialism are all branches on the same tree with the same rotten roots. The idea that government knows better than you do about how you should live your life. Our liberty is under assault, my friends, as it has always been. This time, however, the existential threat is coming from within. Like the men who ran towards the battle 75 years ago, we have to be every bit as resolute. We must not only honor their sacrifice, we must try to emulate their courage and fight with all our heart and soul and might to protect the country we love and save the future of our nation. My friends, we need to win this battle of ideas. A great deal has been said about these brave men over the last week. Their story is one we should revisit regularly because it is the story of America. On June 6, 1944, more than 156,000 Allied troops stormed the shores of Normandy and France in order to, once and for all, break the back of the Nazi menace. They were supported by more than 23,000 airborne troops. Of all these, 73,000 were Americans. Most of them were not battle-hardened soldiers, but rather they were young men, some barely out of high school. 9,000, 9,000 of our young men died on the beaches of Normandy that day. But their sacrifice helped to turn the tide of the war against the Nazis 
and began the destruction of Hitler's war machine. Omaha Beach was the picture of hell that day. Although it was already the beginning of June, the water was terribly cold. The soldiers suffered in every possible way, from the cold, from their wounds, and some from the sheer terror of their seemingly hopeless situation. The Germans were entrenched on top of the cliffs overlooking the beach, and they were firing down on the Allied soldiers from their protected positions. On the beach, the dead and the dying lay in the water, on the beach, and the cries of pain and the prayers of dying men tore through the air. But the bravery of those men who were on the beach was beyond amazing. Those who could fought with all their strength, despite the overwhelming odds. Another friend of mine, a career naval officer, wrote about a piece of his own family's history. He wrote this, Seventy-five years ago, my old man landed in the third wave on Omaha Beach as a Navy corpsman with the U.S. Navy Beach Landing Battalion. They took 80% casualties. My gosh. He was pinned down for hours, throwing guts back into guys after they took direct fire from the machine guns and 88 millimeter guns that were tearing them up from above. He said, rumors began to circulate that orders were given to get back to the boats, which were foundering in the heavy surf under machine gun, mortar, and artillery fire, as well as among the mines and beach obstacles offshore. He said the rumors suggested they were to withdraw. But nobody moved. Finally, somebody stood up and said, We have to get off this beach, but not on boats. And that's when a group of soldiers blew through the wire and assaulted the bluffs, and they took out the German gun positions. That feat was memorialized, by the way, in the film Saving Private Ryan. This, my friends, was the greatest generation, the one that saved the West from the hell that the Nazis had in store for us and who changed the course of history. Now, you've heard me talk before about how we must allow ourselves, train ourselves, to learn from history in order not to repeat the mistakes we have made in the past. We are more fortunate than our ancestors because we now have access to our history in so many more ways than they ever did, through the miracles of modern technology. We have access to the best historical analysis of some of the greatest minds in the world to teach us how to better understand the history that preceded us, how to use our knowledge of history to help us move forward in better ways and how to understand the humanity in us that enables us to build on the best of our past and design a better future for those who will come after us. It's all about learning from history. Now the threat that we are facing today is this. There is a growing movement of people among us who want to deny history, to rewrite history, 
to go back to old models that have been proven disastrous to hundreds of millions of people around the world and which now, if it is allowed to proceed, threatens hundreds of millions more. So what can we learn from D-Day? What can we learn from the soldiers who died there and from the ones who returned? We can learn that they believed that freedom is worth fighting for and, yes, dying for. It is because of their sacrifice that we now live in America, not under a Nazi dictatorship, but still free in our United States of America. You know, there is a story about Benjamin Franklin that I'd like to share with you. Following the conclusion of the U.S. Constitutional Convention, a woman asked him, Well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? Franklin's response was simple and profound. He answered, A republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. What Franklin was saying was that our new constitution had created a limited representative republic. It was certainly not a monarchy. Neither was it a democracy in which the majority has unlimited power. In our representative republic, our written constitution limits the majority and provides safeguards for both the individual and minorities. But also, because it is a representative republic, it does not give either individuals or minorities the power to bully the majority or demand that the majority must follow its lead. There is supposed to be in this representative republic a middle ground on which the majority and the minority can find compromise that will, to some greater or lesser extent, satisfy them both. That's what a compromise is all about. But there was a stern warning in Dr. Franklin's answer to that woman. When he added, if you can keep it, he was trying to tell her that maintaining the values that defined the new republic would not be easy. The idea that a country could be ruled by the people to whom the government was responsible, that was revolutionary. That the representatives were elected by the people was also revolutionary. And Franklin was warning that the road forward would be fraught with obstacles and traps that would always be there to threaten the nation and the fragile basis on which it had been built. Dr. Franklin is famous for another quote that has been used many times to illustrate the tension between liberty and security. In a letter which he wrote in 1755, it was in reference to a dispute regarding Pennsylvania's frontier security during the French and Indian War. He said, quote, Those who would give up essential liberty to pursue a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Unquote. Although the context of the original quote was limited in scope because it referred to border security in the midst of a war, over time this quote has been given a much broader context to apply to individual liberty versus national security. And at no time has it been more relevant than it is today. Following 9-11, Congress passed the United States Patriot Act. 
It was a bill that raised many questions about how much liberty Americans needed to give up to the government in order to secure the safety of the nation. The same questions can certainly be asked now, today. As our country becomes more and more subject to things like universal surveillance by the ubiquitous security and traffic cameras, by tracking software, through our cell phones, laptop computers, and products like Alexa that give perfect strangers access to what goes on in our homes. How closely is our privacy linked to our liberty in this current atmosphere that tells us that personal privacy is the thing of the past? When schools resolve by administrative decision to allow biological boys who feel more like girls to use the girls' lavatories and the girls' locker rooms, where has the girls' privacy gone? Where is their liberty? And when a presidential candidate pledges to force Americans to close down an entire class of schools, in this case, Bernie Sanders, who has called for a ban on all charter schools, or abolish an entire industry, in this case, possible candidate Mike Bloomberg, who has pledged half a billion dollars to close down the coal industry. They are promising to destroy a large swath of what has made our nation great, individual initiative and choice. The Democrats have been moving steadily toward the extreme left and are beginning to eclipse the traditional centrists in their own party. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has seen her hard-earned power base being steadily eroded by the extreme left among the Democrats. And this, my friends, is where the real threat is developing. I'll be talking more about this in the next segment of the show. But for the moment, let me just say this about socialism. The power grab by the government and the theft of independence and self-determination from the people are the hallmarks of socialism. Today, the major threat against the core values that have made this country exceptional from its very beginning is the lie that socialism is the answer to the problems we face and the momentum of the liberal left that is trying to push through their radical agenda. Our country has held its own through many wars, including a civil war and two world wars, and through the technological revolution that has changed virtually every aspect of the way we live. Our culture of free enterprise, free elections, and free expression is slowly being destroyed. Because today, the Democrats in our Congress are fighting to impose a new socialism on us, one that will replace the representative republic that made our country great with a socialist nightmare that will take away our individual prerogatives and turn our nation into a third world country. The writing is already on the wall. What will happen throughout the country under a socialist government will not be unlike what has already happened in the cities of San Francisco and Los Angeles. Socialist policies in these two cities have created slums like nothing that has ever been seen in America before. Once attractive city sidewalks throughout the downtown areas of these two cities have been taken over 
by the encampments of the homeless. The sidewalks are covered with tents and lean-tos, and for the homeless who have neither, they are just lying on the sidewalk, curled up to keep warm and dry. The sidewalks themselves are strewn with newspapers and, and garbage, used hypodermic needles and human waste, and they're infested with lice and rats. These two cities are now home to diseases we haven't seen in generations, typhus and plague. And the cities, which spend millions of dollars on cleaning up from time to time, do little or nothing to relocate these homeless or help them in any significant way. This, my friends, is the fruit of the socialist tree. This is not what our founding fathers fought so hard to create, and this is exactly what Benjamin Franklin meant when he warned that woman, if you can keep it. The battle is joined, my friends. If we value the freedom that the men at Normandy fought and died for, if we value their sacrifice, and if we are willing to fight to hold on to their dream of a free America that can be a light to the world, then we have the chance to save the America that we love and to be able to bequeath it to our children and our grandchildren, knowing that we have done everything we could to keep it safe and free. Ronald Reagan once said, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on to them to do the same. My friends, we have a big job in front of us. All right, we're going to take a short break. And then we will come back and talk about some of the causes and the origins of the threats that we now face to the America we love. Don't go away. I'll be right back. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitcher News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. The nearly universal patriotism that Americans felt at the end of World War II has largely evaporated over the last 74 years. Today, the idea that we can be proud of our country is mocked and disparaged by the left. The country is deeply divided, and the divide is growing. You know, when I was a kid, our heroes used to be George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, men like that. We studied them in school. We learned about their lives, the bravery of these men. These men were our heroes. Today, the heroes are baseball players and football players who earn the big bucks, but haven't really contributed much to this country. The nationalism on the right is countered by the anti-nationalism on the left. So, the football players who are heroes take a knee during the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner, our national anthem. 
That's not the way we were brought up. But it's even worse than that because now a powerful segment of the Democrat Party is moving steadily away from the fundamental principles of our representative republic and towards socialism, as they define it, as a viable and necessary alternative for America, and they are taking the Democrat Party with them. The driving force behind this seismic shift in fundamental ideology are the socialists of the new left, the social justice warriors, who shun our traditional values and promote change at any price. They depend on identity politics rather than America's traditional issues-based politics, and they focus on the values of individuals and distinctly separate groups, the things that divide us rather than identifying the things that we share and that connect us as Americans, which they discard. We have become a country devoid of a shared constitutional horizon, one that would enable us to reach across political divides to design a mutually achieved path forward. Today, the visions of the left and the right are in fact mutually exclusive. So what is this socialism that Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez are promoting with such passion? Bernie Sanders has defined his own top priority. It is, he says, to deal with the massive levels of income and wealth inequality in this country. And he continues, what I mean by democratic socialism is creating a government that works for everybody not controlled either legislatively or politically by a handful of very wealthy people, like himself. Number two, it means in America we have certain economic rights that are human rights. Health care, to my mind, is not a privilege, it's a human right. And when I talk about democratic socialism, it means a vibrant democracy and an economy that works for all, not just for the people on the top. Unquote. Honestly, I think he used a lot of words, but I don't think he said very much. No details at all, just glittering generalities. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, on the other hand, describes it this way. She says, quote, So when millennials talk about concepts like democratic socialism, we're not talking about these kinds of red scare bogeymen. We're talking about countries and systems that already exist that have already been proven to be successful in the modern world, unquote. Her philosophy advocates a political democracy alongside a socially owned economy, and she describes it as similar to what she calls the socialism of Sweden and Denmark. She's a little fuzzy on that too. Sweden is not a socialist country, and neither is Denmark. So here's the problem, and probably the source of her confusion. The Nordic countries that she refers to are really capitalist countries that have very high taxes so that they can pay for their extremely generous government social programs. So these are actually very poor examples. Now the problem with Ocasio-Cortez's brand of socialism is that her hold on the nuts and bolts of creating an economic system, one that will actually work, is fragile at best. And while it may be true that Ocasio-Cortez received a degree in economics from Boston University, she doesn't really seem to have a firm grip on economics in the real world. 
But because the socialist activists have reached a point of success within the Democrat Party, which is to say they now control their leaders for all practical purposes, they are confident that their future is clear. And by the way, whatever she may say that she believes in and wants to recreate on American soil, that Green New Deal says otherwise. That is a program that will take over virtually every aspect of life in America and destroy much of what it has taken 240 years to build. It will also cost a huge fortune. She says it will cost $100 trillion, but that is probably just the tip of the iceberg. It will cost that much just to build. Maybe. But what will it continue to cost to maintain the program as well? And who will pay for it? Why, we will, of course, through skyrocketing taxes and a reduction of quality services, especially for the middle class. Despite what her camp followers, like New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, for example, and others, despite what they say, her program is a disaster. And if it is accepted as the way forward, it is also the recipe for a socialist nightmare and ultimate failure. It will dictate to us how we live, what we can eat and what we can't, what schools we can send our kids to, what kind of home we can live in, where we can work and how we can get there, what kind of health care we can have. And in addition to all that, there will be a tremendous intrusion into many other aspects of our lives. That is not a free society that she describes, but a fully socialist society in which the government controls almost every aspect of our lives, unlike in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. So the political clash that has been percolating across the country has descended into bitter culture wars that have split the country and resulted in an inability to cross the divide. Each side legitimizes its own positions by asserting that it must protect the public from the threat that is represented by the other side. The biggest shift in this direction occurred when Barack Obama became president. From the beginning, he openly promised to fundamentally change America. And he made a good start because under his presidency, groups like Black Lives Matter began to take to the streets to express their anger at the established status quo. And it was a time when the Black Panther voter intimidation took place, the one where Black Panther soldiers stood outside of polling places in largely black neighborhoods, looking menacingly at any white voter brave enough to come to vote. Obama's Attorney General Eric Holder refused to prosecute this obvious voter intimidation, and the president supported him. It was also during Obama's tenure when the college students began to beg for safe spaces to protect them from opinions other than their own in the real world. Obama presented a mea culpa view of America. He told the world that America was guilty of great crimes and must atone for its bad acts. This encouraged the view at home that members of minority groups, blacks, Latinos, Palestinians, LGBTQ, etc., and others, were owed something, and they began demanding it. Politically motivated street violence became much more common. By the time the 2016 presidential campaigns rolled around, college campuses had become hotspots 
for super-left anti-Trump politicking. After Trump won the election, colleges underscored their support for the left by coddling these students in the light of their trauma. They offered them so-called safe spaces, where they could recover from the shock and distress of Trump's unexpected win. The colleges provided their students with anxiety-busting activities like coloring books and Play-Doh. They treated them like babies, which in fact they were. And what was probably the indirect result of this growing feeling of entitlement, the demonstrators began to demand that we revise history, that we remove the memory of slave owners, for example, who included George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and many others, because they were slave owners. But these men, who led us through the revolution and helped to create our nation, were also men of their times, and although slavery was a ghastly and horrible institution, it was practiced widely throughout the South. And as a measure of the times, and in retrospect, the memory of this piece of our history demonstrates to us who try to learn from history how far we have come in our development as a humane nation. And as I have said many times on this show, if we blot out the memory of the awful parts of our history, how will we ever be able to learn from our tragedies and mistakes and not repeat them? Erasing history is the only answer for people who never learned history in context and who do not understand the importance of the terrible parts of our past to use as an example of how we must do better in the future. So let's get back to the matter at hand, the current political divide in America and where it is leading us. America has a fine tradition of honoring the results of elections. No matter how bitterly fought and how dramatic the results, Americans have always known that the winner of the election is the winner and that after the elections are over, the rest of us need to go back to our lives while the new government takes office and gets down to business. And this has worked for 240 years, until now. 2016 wasn't the first time that the expected outcome of a presidential election was such a dramatic upset. The most famous of these was 1948, when Democrat Harry Truman won a surprise victory over Republican Thomas E. Dewey. On the following morning, Truman, wearing a great big smile, famously held a newspaper over his head that had the headline, quote, Dewey wins by a landslide, unquote. Only Dewey didn't win. Truman won. Republicans were shocked, but they got over it. They didn't melt down into tears. They didn't stop working or demand that classes be canceled. And they sure didn't get coloring books to help them get through the trauma of their loss. Now, two and a half years after the 2016 election, Democrats are still refusing to accept the results. And after their unexpected loss in 2016, Democrats had a complete meltdown led by the leaders of their own party. Rather than uniting Democrats throughout the country as they did in the past, encouraging them to try harder next time, and urging them to accept the new administration in the time-honored American tradition. Instead of that, the Democrats led the charge against the election results, demanding that they be changed, charging fraud, vowing to dismantle the Electoral College, and attacking the new president with a hot vengeance 
that could only be satisfied by his impeachment. So here we are, at an impasse, and that is where the threat lies. Because after the 2016 election, the open loathing got much worse, and the open violence became much more focused against the president and his supporters wherever they were. Members of his staff, as well as his supporters, were forced to leave public restaurants, were harassed in the streets, and even at their homes. Supporters wearing MAGA hats were routinely attacked on the streets wherever they went. But rather than trying to discourage the violence against other Americans, Democrat legislators did the opposite. Maxine Waters, for example, who was the worst of these, urged her followers to harass the Trump administration in any way they could. She said, Quote, if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gas station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push it back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. Unquote. Aside from being a completely un-American sentiment, the pure hostility of those words encouraged violence against anyone supporting the president. And the country took her words to heart and continued a dissent into the swamp of incivility and violence that was encouraged by an elected official. But it gets worse because the divide has found its way into Congress, within the Democrat Party. The Democrats in Congress who support the moves towards socialism are becoming increasingly radical. They are now forcing more middle-of-the-road members, including Speaker of the House Pelosi, either further to the left or out of power. Pelosi is losing her grip on her power base, and her facade of wealthy superiority is beginning to crack. And as her power wanes, the political powers of the far left increases. The new socialists, the social justice warriors, are beginning to fill the vacuum they have created by forcing the centrist old-timers out and pushing their agenda to the forefront of the Democrat platform. We can see it as the Democrat candidates for the presidency are slowly changing their own platforms to accommodate the far left. And as the old guard fades away and the new radicals take over the Congress, the rift between left and right continues to widen. Civil discussion is no longer possible. Civil negotiations, no longer possible, even among themselves. And neither is negotiation with Republicans at any level. The radical left wants what it wants, and there is no compromise period. So here we are and the temperature is rising. What does it all mean and where is it taking us? Well, when one of the opposing sides to the argument will not talk to the other in civil terms, when their rhetoric continues to escalate, when they plot against their adversaries instead of finding new ways to compromise, when the argument spills out into the street and ends in violence, and when disagreement turns into demonization and demonization gives way to more violence, then democracy becomes corrupted and degraded. This, my friends, is how a civil war begins. So what can be done to remedy the threat before us? Do we want to live in a country where the only rights we have are the ones that are doled out by the government? The ones that people paid for? What happened to the inalienable rights that were endowed to us by our creator? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Is the Declaration of Independence a part of the history they want to erase? We have a government, part of which is about to go completely off the rails, and wants to try to destroy the best that America has to offer, 
and replace it with the worst by destroying its economic viability and then pushing it downhill into socialist ruin so that the streets of all of our cities will soon look like the slums already taking over the sidewalks of the formerly beautiful cities of Los Angeles and San Francisco. No, that is not acceptable. And there is a way to confront it and stop it. Here are three things we need to remember. One, we are fortunate that we have a president who has the personal fortitude, the strength of will, and the love for his country to stand at the gate and be the first impediment to the radical left. He is a proud capitalist and a believer in the free market, and he has said quite clearly that this will not be a socialist country. I believe he will do everything in his power to ensure that. Second, we conservative Americans are ourselves a strong people. We do not believe the foolish fantasies of the left who say that all you need to do is show up and you get the prize. We have been raised in the mold of the soldiers who have not only showed up, but who have fought with all their heart and soul for the freedom of America. They serve as an inspiration to our generations. We can be strong enough to stop this encroachment on American values and stand up for the things that have made this country great and unique and extraordinary for over 200 years. And third, this is the simplest of all. Alexander Hamilton wrote in the Federalist Paper Number 21, quote, The natural cure for an ill administration in a popular or representative constitution is a change of men, unquote. My friends, when the American people are threatened by those who would destroy what generations of Americans have fought and died for, the regular elections give them the opportunity to fire their representatives and elect new ones. It is we, the people, who hold the power of the ballot that can make all the difference between freedom and bondage. We are in a constitutional crisis, my friend. This is a national emergency, and we are coming closer to the brink of a civil war. But we are also proud enough and dedicated enough and strong enough to overcome the threat that faces us today. We, too, can run for office. We can lobby for our representative republic, and we can vote in every election. We can save our country for our children and for our grandchildren, free and strong, the way it was meant to be. Whew. Well, we're going to take another break now, but don't go away because I'll be back in a few minutes and we'll catch up on some of the other stories that showed up in the news this past week. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. 
This past week, the resignation of British Prime Minister Theresa May became official. She didn't go away, though. Not yet. She'll remain at 10 Downing Street until a new Prime Minister is elected, which should happen sometime before the end of July. But you never know. So we'll see. May was forced to step down when her own cabinet withdrew its support for her in light of the Brexit deal that she failed to deliver. Throughout the last two years, she has managed to muddle her way into a Brexit mess, refusing to properly acknowledge the voters' clear mandate to get out of the European Union and once again be an independent nation. So she is now leaving office with the country deeply and venomously divided. In addition to the traditional political parties that will vie with each other for seats in the British Parliament, there is likely to be a new party in the electoral mix. It's called the Brexit Party. The once proud Daily Telegraph called politicians who argued against a clean, hard Brexit guilty of treason. Those are harsh words, and probably well over the top. But the British voters were very clear about what they wanted, and they are deeply frustrated. In the European Parliament elections that were held last month, Britain's two largest parties, Conservative and Labour, suffered badly in the outcome. The big winner was a new party. The new party founded only in April, the Brexit Party, which won 32.6% of the vote, by far the highest plurality. The Liberal Democrats came in second with 20.3%, Labour won 14.1%, and the Green Party had 12.7%. And the Conservatives, Theresa May's party, only eked out a meager 9.1%. The Brexit Party has only one plank in its platform, for Britain to get out of the EU as quickly as possible, whether or not a separation, or what they call a divorce agreement, has been arrived at. Whenever the new elections will take place, there is a possibility of a no-deal exit from the EU or of a new referendum in Britain that could reverse the decision to leave altogether. In other words, rather than having an agreement in place with the European Union, a no-deal exit from the EU will mean that no agreements will be in place to protect the future relations between the UK and the European Union on a large range of issues. This could make for some very serious problems on the other side of the pond. British politics doesn't usually generate a great deal of interest in America, but this year it should be very interesting indeed. Stay tuned. And here's a story that caught me by surprise at the beginning of the week, and I think probably I wasn't the only one. On Sunday, June 9th, more than a million residents of Hong Kong took to the streets to demonstrate against the Chinese government for failing to keep its promise to Great Britain, which ended its control of the island in 1997. Now remember, Hong Kong was ceded to the British in 1842 by the Chinese, a year before the end of the Opium War. And it was the British who governed Hong Kong for 156 years. It was only in 1997 when the small island was returned to the Chinese but it was handed back with conditions. 
The communist Chinese government wanted some restoration of its honor for the humiliation of having been forced to cede land to a Western power a century and a half ago. China therefore insisted on the return of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty. The British, though, were worried that the economic future of Hong Kong would suffer under communist rule, and with good reason, because by 1997, Hong Kong had become one of the most important and influential financial centers in the world, and China was a communist country. So here we have capitalism versus communism. Very interesting. So the Chinese proposed a compromise known as one country, two systems. Under this plan, Hong Kong would become part of China and would function under Chinese sovereignty, but it would continue to exist as a capitalist economy for the next 50 years. The agreement between Great Britain and China was that for 50 years following Britain's departure, the Chinese would guarantee effective autonomy, including universal suffrage and free elections, and it would allow self-rule as part of the deal. Not surprisingly, of course, the Chinese have slowly been tightening their grip on the island and squeezing its autonomy. The huge protests on June 6th were in response to a newly proposed bill that would legalize extraditions of targeted individuals from Hong Kong to China. The day after the demonstration, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, who was appointed, by the way, not elected, she was appointed by the Chinese government. Carrie Lam said, despite the tremendous opposition from the people of Hong Kong, she would push forward with the legislation anyway. She said she had no intention of withdrawing it. One lawmaker said about Lam, she has to withdraw the bill and resign. The whole of Hong Kong is against her, unquote. But of course, if the Chinese government is behind her, she can do whatever she likes. China has already broken that agreement by overriding its promise of free elections and appointing its own government to rule the island. Moreover, the Chinese government has already extradited Hong Kong citizens to China for what they call justice. Abductions have already taken place, from booksellers who were abducted from their stores to billionaires who were abducted from their hotels in Hong Kong. Human rights groups have often accused the Chinese government of using torture, arbitrary detentions, and forced confessions against Hong Kong citizens who have been abducted. And they also complain that once in China, the accused have great difficulty accessing lawyers and fair trials. So if the new law is passed, it would certainly allow extradition of wanted suspects to mainland China. But opponents say that once in China, there is no guarantee of either fairness or transparency in the Chinese court system. They also worry that Chinese security forces will actually make up charges in order to carry out the extraditions. Nevertheless, these demonstrations have sent a strong message to China about how Hong Kong feels about the way China has been breaking the promises it made to Great Britain, promises that were written and signed agreements between China and the United Kingdom. The people of Hong Kong are angry that this signed agreement was observed more in the breach. This is a cautionary tale for President Trump, that China is not very good at honoring its written agreements. Caveat emptor. 
And finally, here's a story about my least favorite state, the one that keeps threatening to leave the Union of the United States, but never actually does. California is back in the news with another impossible-to-believe story that stretches the credibility of even the craziest legislator in the land of flakes and nuts. Not to mention the people who are still left in California and who actually choose to continue to live there. The news this week is that California is set to expand free health care coverage to cover illegal immigrants, although in California they call them unauthorized immigrants. Oh well. Two new bills are now in the process, one in the state assembly and one in the state senate. The lawmakers who wrote them come from, of course, the Central Valley and Los Angeles County, and their bills are nearly identical. Both of these bills extend full coverage for Medi-Cal, which is the state's Medicaid program. It gives Medi-Cal benefits to anyone who would otherwise be eligible for them if their immigration status didn't disqualify them. Got that? In other words, it's offering free state-funded health care coverage for illegal immigrants. In California, illegal immigrants are currently disqualified from receiving free health care insurance at the taxpayer's expense. The California Assembly has already voted 44 to 11 in favor of their version of the bill. This program will cost Californians $3 billion every year. Sally Pipes, who is the president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute, that's a California-based free market think tank, she said in an interview with the Daily Signal, quote, paying for the health care of the undocumented in California is, in effect, a tax on the people who are here legally. If taxpayers protest with their feet by moving out of the state, there will be fewer taxpayers left in California to cover skyrocketing health care costs and more pressure on the people who remain to pay for these programs. Unquote. On the other side of the argument, proponents claim that undocumented immigrants contribute billions of dollars to California's economy, and therefore they deserve, with an emphasis on the word deserve, the same access to health care services as its citizens. But wait a minute. They're in the country illegally. They broke the law the moment they put one foot on American soil. So why is it that they deserve anything but a trip back across the border? Okay, never mind. This is California. But look at the numbers. About half the state's estimated two-plus million illegal immigrants have income levels low enough to make them eligible for Medi-Cal coverage. So that's one million more people on the health care rolls who earn so little that they qualify for government assistance, which includes much more than just health care. And here's another thing. However altruistic they want to be, California simply can't afford it. For example, they have a vast state water project, the largest state-built water project in the United States. It was constructed during the two decades between the 1960s and the 1970s, when the population in California was about 20 million. The project apparently didn't expect the population to grow that much because it was designed to serve only 25 million people. Today, California has the population of nearly 40 million people, but the state's water system 
is no better today than it was in the 1960s. So how is California going to pay for all the repairs and improvements that the water system requires? And here's another thing. Over the last 50 years, California has ignored its other infrastructure needs as well. Its roads and bridges, for example, are some of the worst in the nation, and they aren't getting any better. So if California were to upgrade its infrastructure to meet the current demand, it could cost, according to the Bay Area Council Economic Institute, as much as $765 billion. How would they pay for that? And then there's a little matter of the state's debt. As of June 30th, 2015, California state and local governments owed a combined $1.3 trillion, and that is just the amount to which California's state and local governments are willing to admit. One study says the number is actually more like $2.3 trillion, almost double. So with all these other urgent needs, where will they get all the money they need to pay for this new free health care for one million illegal immigrants? Is this why they call California la-la land? Okay, they say they will collect it by raising taxes. Really? California already has the highest income tax rates in the country. Did you know that the top state income tax rate in California is 13.3%? That's on top of federal income tax. The next highest state income tax rate in the country is in Oregon, and that's 9.9%. But Oregon doesn't have a sales tax, and California has the 10th highest sales tax in the country at 7.5%. California also pays some of the highest capital gains taxes, not only in the nation, but in the entire world. The state taxes all capital gains as income and doesn't give any tax breaks for them. And here's one more little interesting fact. Fewer than 150,000 of California's nearly 40 million people pay half of all of its income tax. You got that? 150,000 pay half of the income tax in a state whose population is 40 million people. You can't make this stuff up, friends. This is just crazy. So so what happens to the other 39,850,000 people who are not paying half the income tax for the state? How many of those are paying anything? And hey, what about their homeless problems? And what about the thousands of homeless American citizens and veterans living on the sidewalks of San Francisco and Los Angeles or in their cars? Why is it that a million-plus illegal immigrants will benefit from this new law? And the more than half-million homeless Americans living on the streets of California's once-beautiful cities are not being helped. Los Angeles voters have twice voted to raise their taxes to pay for homeless services and housing. That was in the, just in the last three years. Yet 600,000 Los Angeles County residents are still considered homeless. In the San Francisco area, there are more than 28,000 known homeless people living on the sidewalks or in their cars. These homeless men, women, and even children have taken over miles of city streets with their tents and their makeshift lean-tos. The sidewalks also serve as their toilets and drug dens 
and they're home to rats and to diseases we haven't seen for generations. We've talked about this before. It is horrendous. And it's not only happening in California, but California is the poster child for this. On the other side of the scale, as Sally Pipes suggested, Californians are so fed up with skyrocketing housing costs and the high taxes, and they're fleeing the state in large numbers. Where are they going? Many have left for low-tax states offering more job opportunities than California. Maybe Florida or New Hampshire, which don't, by the way, have any state income tax. And they both have an excellent quality of life. So whose taxes will pay for the free services for the illegal immigrants? And by the way, speaking of quality of life, did you know that California is dead last on the list of American states for its quality of life? That's according to a recent study by U.S. News. Well, my friends, we've come to the end of another hour. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you for joining me for the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and you've been listening to The Friedman Report. <laughs>